Welcome to the second episode of the Dialogue Book Report. I am Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue. Today I will be presenting the second in my two-part series on LDS Missionary Memoirs. In this episode, I talked to BYU Humanities Professor Craig Harlan about his memoir, Way Below the Angels, about his two-year mission in Belgium in the 1970s. It is an insightful and hilarious book, and I am delighted to be able to talk to Craig about it. We are also joined by Christopher Jones, a historian who specializes in Protestant and LDS religion in the 19th and early 20th century. Jones is currently teaching a class at BYU on Christian missionaries, including Mormon missionaries, and he uses Harlan's book in his class. Jones will tell us about the reaction from the students, his own thoughts about Mormon missionary memoirs, and where they fit into the larger genre of Christian memoirs. But before we get to the interview, I want to let you know about three more book reviews featured in the winter 2019 issue of Dialogue. First, D. Michael Quinn's The Mormon Hierarchy, Wealth and Corporate Power. It is reviewed by Christopher C. Smith, a fascinating historian who can be heard nearly weekly as part of the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast. Quinn, of course, is one of our age's most important historians of Mormonism. This long-awaited third volume of his Mormon Hierarchy series, released 20 years after the last volume, extends his study of Latter-day Saint general authorities into the realm of finances. Smith says that Quinn writes as a reformer in quest of ecclesiastical transparency. Quinn ends his book writing very positively about the church's management of its finances. Soon after the book was published, the Washington Post, followed by the Wall Street Journal, have published articles about the surprisingly large amount of money managed by the church's Ensign Peak advisors. Quinn has appeared in the media defending the church, claiming that the amount of money they are holding is justified considering the needs that might occur in case of another financial panic, and claiming that the church management practices have been legal, ethical, and intelligent. Quinn was excommunicated in 1993 because of his scholarship on LDS history, so it is fascinating to see him defend LDS leadership so forcefully. You can hear Quinn talk about his book in two of the wonderful podcasts that are part of the Dialogue Podcast Collective, Gospel Tangents and The Mormon News Report. Those are two of my favorite podcasts. I never miss an episode of either one. Returning to the book, Quinn examines the personal wealth of prophets and apostles and their role in managing church businesses. Financial management sometimes led to bad blood and cutthroat competition between individual general authorities. Quinn discusses the shifts in church finances from heavy debt in 1900 to solvency under J. Reuben Clark in the 1930s, back to debt in the 1950s because of over-exuberance in building new meeting houses, and then finally solvency in 1963. Quinn is largely positive about the church's management of its money since 1963. Smith claims that Quinn is a better historian than an economist and points out a few mistakes Quinn makes on economic and financing issues. However, Smith concludes that the book is an indispensable work. Next, we turn to Laura Rudder Strickling's book, on Fire in Baltimore, Black Mormon Women and Conversion in a Raging City. Strickland introduces her readers to 11 Black Baltimore Mormon women, who impart an impressive set of personal and spiritual narratives. Along the way, she ties each story to Baltimore's racial history, to evolving Latter-day Saint racial attitudes and practices, and to the fire that drives conversion and commitment for these urban Black sisters. The book is reviewed by Patrick Hemming, who also lived in Baltimore, and was familiar with Strickland and the women she interviewed. Strickling, who is white, states that she became intrigued by the way African-American women in church initiated vocal prayers, speaking to God about informal matters as though the prayer was not given in public. She spent over 10 years collecting interviews. She described the events that led to each sister's conversion, events that often included harrowing experiences of dire poverty, violence, and addiction. At the same time, the narrative includes testimonies, visions, miracles, and healings. Strickling writes that these black sisters possessed a burning trust, an unquenchable spiritual fire that I was not acquainted with. On Fire in Baltimore grapples with the inherent pitfalls that arise from a white person recording and synthesizing the voices of black women, who have historically lacked such a platform of power from which to speak. Strickling reminds the reader often of her struggle to be aware of and to moderate the filter of her rural Western Mormon upbringing. Finally, we have Brooke Larson's Pleasing Tree, 
This is a collection of personal essays, along with poems and some visual pieces. Larson and her reviewer, Amy Takabori, are both very young authors with fresh, exciting voices. Larson's essays portray her interactions with trees and other earth things as central to her wanderings through the Arizona desert, New York City parks, and Israel. She shows herself as literally hugging trees as well as urinating on them. Larson masterfully balances earthy humor with profundity, using her insights into plant processes to explore questions like, how did I get here? The collection begins with the powerful essay, Ecology of Absence, in which Larson recounts her experiences as a guide in a wilderness therapy program for precarious teens, which centers around a long walk across a wild stretch of Arizona desert. In between episodes about variously stubborn and pained teen walkers, Larson walks us through ruminations of Navajo tradition, Mormon pioneer heritage, Chinese aesthetic philosophy, and John Cage's performance of silence. Larson identifies as an ethnic Mormon, which she explains is the blander state between LDS and ex-LDS. As the church continues to grapple with how to make its community more inclusive to a wider spectrum of people, it is worth noting that Larson is making a meaningful contribution to the visibility of ethnic Mormons with this collection. Okay, that is the end of my summary of the book reviews. Next, we will begin the interview with Craig Harlan and Christopher Jones. Today, we're talking to Craig Harlan. Craig is the author of the 2014 memoir, Way Below the Angels, the pretty clearly troubled but not even close to tragic confessions of a real-life Mormon missionary. Uh, which was named the 2014 Best Personal History slash Memoir by the Mormon Scholarly Blog Juvenile Instructor, and was a finalist for the AML Creative Nonfiction Award that year, and received a starred review from Publishers Weekly. Craig is the author of several books, including A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation, and Conversions, Two Family Stories from the Reformation in Modern America, which was named one of 2011's top 10 books in religion by Publishers Weekly. He teaches European history at Brigham Young University. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. We're also joined by Christopher Jones. Christopher Jones is a historian of early America and the Atlantic world whose research focuses on religion and culture in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And he also teaches in Brigham Young University. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Christopher teaches a course on missions and missionaries in American history at BYU. And one of the books in his syllabus is Craig's memoir. So I was interested in getting his take on Mormon missionaries' experience and the role of literature in the way that we look at missionaries. Well, Craig, can you maybe start us out, tell us why you were interested in writing this book? I think I got the idea soon after I came home from my mission and um, maybe a few years afterwards and started having a dream that I had to go on another mission and it was really terrifying. <laughs> I felt really guilty about having this dream. And it's like, how could a good missionary possibly have a dream that they'd be afraid to go on another mission? So. I thought one way I've always coped with something like that, or at least in recent years I had, was by writing. So I thought I should write something about it. So I started writing something, but then of course I got busy with graduate school and then getting a job as a professor and kept putting it off. But always in my mind, I had uh, the idea that I wanted to write it. And in my late thirties, I got brave, brave enough to start asking other return missionaries whether they'd ever had this dream. And it turns out most of them had. <laughs> so I thought, I think I'm, this is something that maybe a lot of people would like to write about, actually, or at least talk about. And so I thought it might be interesting to um, to do something like that. So as time went on, we got close to around 2010. It's by the time I, I really started writing it. I, think. I also suffered from that dream a lot. Waking up in cold sweat, panicking with the idea that I was going to call it. And I think halfway through my mission, I started having that dream. Uh, <laughs> You've been asked to serve a whole another two years or, or 
it's finally started to fade in the last few years. Uh, yeah. Well, I had a theory about that, too, because some people have told me after they read the book that they started having the dream again. They hadn't had it in a long time. <laughs> and I said, I said, I think that's probably just because you were getting old, not because you'd actually processed it and figured out what it meant. So it's good for you to have the dream again and to have to think about it, I think. <laughs> Chris, do you have that dream? I have had it more than a few times. Yeah, I definitely have. So what were your goals for writing the book, Greg? Well, one of the first things I thought of is that I would like to write it in a way so that not only other Mormons could read it, but people of other faiths. I've always been interested myself in reading religious experience and memoir, people in other religions. And one of the things I realized was that the deeper they went into their experience and into their own faith, somehow the more universal it became. And that's what happened to me. The more internal and more internally I wrote, I suppose, somehow the more universal it was. And that's really ironic because you expect that you're looking for these kind of broad trends or something. But the broad trends, I think, lie deeper inside. And that's the thing that surprised me the most is that people, many people have told me, oh, yes, I had this experience. I felt like that was my mission and so on. And of course, we all feel like that our mission is absolutely unique, even though we know it's not. But even in these very deep ways, it turns out there are a lot of common patterns. Not everybody has them. Of course, people have different experiences and personalities. There are people who laughed at me when I asked them if they had the dream, like, what are you talking about? You know, so I, I know that it's not absolutely universal, but I think it's broad enough that I felt like it could speak to people of other faiths as well as people who had been on missions. I'm very interested in what you said about the commonalities with people of other faiths. It feels like the Mormon mission is such a unique thing. But of course, people in different religions, especially, I guess, clergy, are going to have difficult experiences that are maybe analogous. What were the connections that you found with people from other faiths? For instance, when the publisher of this was Erdman's, which is a pretty broad evangelical sort of press, but broadly speaking, it's pretty moderate. And a lot of the young editors there, when I was discussing it with them and doing interviews and so on, that they set up, we realized that one of the things they said was that they could really relate to a lot of the things in the book. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, you've been saved, you know, you, you, what do you have to worry about? And they said, ah, oh, well, it's a little bit different, but it's kind of the same anxiety. And, and that is, you know, for me, I could never do enough. So I always felt guilty. And in their case, if they don't have enough or if they have too many frustrations, things go wrong or whatever, then they feel like maybe they haven't really been saved. Maybe their salvation is in doubt. And so that makes them anxious. So they're not going to be saved through their good works, in other words, but maybe they weren't saved as much as they thought. Maybe they don't believe enough, in other words. So they uh, they also had some anxieties uh, and some stress. That, that, and that was one of the examples that I related to. But I also had people who write, wrote me um, from other religious traditions, and they enjoyed seeing what it was like to be a missionary because, of course, they're curious about it. But they also could relate to a lot of, a lot of the qualities, I think, or a lot of the experiences are just human. Can you tell us some one of the experiences from your mission that, that has impacted you since then? Something that you go back to a lot in you know, defining your own faith or your own kind of understanding of the world. What's something on your mission that's stuck with you? I mean, I suppose I could pick out a specific experience, but in retrospect, the further away you get, maybe the more you think about a general feeling that is kind of accumulated from a lot of experiences. And that's probably in the chapter toward the end of my book, in the last chapter, when when I realized, partly on my mission, but even more since then, that I did get a lot of 
really valuable things out of my mission, but they were not the things I expected to get. And in fact, I almost got them in spite of the way I had been trained to be a missionary. So that was a really ironic and unexpected conclusion. So in other words, it was worth it. There was a lot that I got, but it wasn't wasn't at all what I thought I would get. Talking to Roger Terry, he he had this interesting take that he really felt like a different person, that it was a different person on his mission. He uses this literary trick where he speaks in the third person a lot. Right. Do, do you feel like that? Do you feel like you were uh, like not I, who I, you are now? Oddly, I felt like another person when I was speaking in another language. And maybe you experienced that speaking Japanese. I don't know. But when I'm speaking in Dutch, I feel like I'm another person. And I think that happens anytime you speak in any other language is that you realize the language is not just about substituting words. It's about a whole new way of thinking. And therefore, it probably adjusts the individual as well who's, who's trying to speak another language, at least if you know the language pretty well. So I felt like another person that way. And I could almost detach myself from, you know, English-speaking Craig to uh, Flemish-speaking Craig. And that enabled me to do some of the things I did as a missionary, which I don't think I could have done in English. I think if I had gone to Arizona on a mission like Chris, I, I think I might have died. I don't know. <laughs> so I study about Japanese colonial policies in China and Korea. And the educators had this theory that... If they could just get the Chinese and Korean children to speak Japanese from the time they were little kids, from early as possible, they didn't try to teach in a translation method, but just almost, they call it the direct method, where they just spoke in Japanese and just tried to immerse them in that, that more than any kind of economic or literal help that would have that they could speak Japanese, that it would emotionally change them, that it would spiritually change them, that there was something about the Japanese language that would make them into different people. And so some of them said, oh, we shouldn't be teaching, you know, love Japan and, and be patriotic. We just should teach the language because mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, that will get them mad yeah. and take them off. But if we just teach the language, then naturally they're going to start thinking like us. There might be something to that. If you're speaking it at least in a real idiomatic way, if you're speaking it as substitute words for your native language, then I don't think it does that. For instance, in my mission, all the missionaries spoke Dutch all the time with each other. They were supposed to. But, wow. all, that, well, but all that did was teach you bad habits because you were speaking English, you know, using English syntax, but Dutch words, right? And so, you sure, you learn some idioms by listening to people and so on and through your study, but you ended up speaking pretty bad Dutch with each other and reinforcing habits. So I don't think that part of it helped. But I think there is something to language, you know, creating you in, in a slightly different way. I think Roger was talking not so much about that. Maybe partly he was, but more just uh, the kind of person he was. And, and I suppose that's partly true just because we age. You know, I mean, 19 is a really important brain change, right, for most people. It's kind of our last significant brain change. There's another one at 25. But you do change. You do become a different person. I, mean, I think our, our cells are always changing as well, right? We're not exactly the same person we were a long time ago. So it makes perfect sense. Speaking in Dutch all the time amongst the missionaries, wasn't that stressful? I really needed that time to stop speaking Japanese and speak English to people. Sometimes, um, I think on our day off, you know, on, the, on your prep day, we, we would lapse into English. But it was part of the stress was stress wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? It was considered to be a, a sign of your zeal. So if you were doing this, you were, you were doing what you'd been asked and, and therefore all the blessings would flow down. We know how that, you know, the transactional system works, but mostly um, you just got, we got in the habit 
Chris, let's talk to you for a minute. Why did you pick this book to use in your course? And maybe tell us a little bit about the course about missionaries that you are going to be teaching. Yeah, sure. So this is a course I developed a couple of years ago uh, at BYU, and it covers uh, the whole scope of uh, missions and missionaries in American history, uh, beginning with the first Jesuit and Franciscan and Dominican missionaries that came over as part of the broader European colonization effort uh, in the Americas, beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and then picks up with the story uh, after the founding of the United States uh, and the first American missionaries uh, sent out by organizations like the American Board for Commissioners of Foreign Missions uh, that sends missionaries to the Pacific Islands and to India and to China and to Africa uh, and really throughout the world. And then traces their story, uh, introduces the beginnings of Mormon missions in the 1830s, 40s and 50s, uh, kind of traces their trajectory and then wraps up by uh, returning to uh, thinking about a very recent phenomenon, and that is uh, what uh, evangelical Christians call return missions, and that is the descendants of those that were first proselytized by American missionaries in the global south are now sending missionaries back to the United States to Christianize this increasingly secular society, to rescue it and return it to its earlier uh, state as a Christian nation, or, or so they perceive and so uh, when I assigned Craig's book a couple of years ago, I did so in part because I thought it would be a fun read for my students. Uh, I did it in part because Craig's a colleague and I would love, and I took advantage of having his office be a couple of doors down and come in and talk with the students. Uh, and they really enjoyed that. Um, but also because I wanted the students to think about how Latter-day Saint missions were part of the broader Christian missionary movement, but also uh, how they were different, how they were unique. Uh, and I thought this memoir that Craig wrote was a really good window into those questions. When I designed the class, I anticipated that it would be a popular one among BYU students, especially among returned missionaries, uh, who I assumed would be overwhelmingly male. And instead, I had 15 uh, women sign up for the class and no men. Uh, and of those 15, only two of them had served missions. And so this was not at all what I was anticipating. When I designed the class, I anticipated a lot of, oh, that reminds me of when I was a missionary. Oh, I know what that's like to try and communicate across yeah. a linguistic or cultural divide. And instead, I had a bunch of uh, 18, 19, and 20-year-old BYU students uh, who had no experience being missionaries. And so I think the sorts of questions that they came with were quite a bit different than who I initially anticipated when I was designing the course. So I think they had a lot of questions about is that really what it's like? Um, and then comparing that with their experiences of their significant others or brothers or dads or, or mothers or, or uh, sisters who have served missions and trying to uh, make sense of how typical or atypical Craig's experience was 30 years ago, 35 years ago, oh, longer, 40. 40 years ago. <laughs> I wasn't trying to date you. So, um, yeah, but I think they have questions about how that you know has changed in the last 40 years since Craig served. Um, especially now with even more recent changes with an uh, increased presence of uh, sister missionaries throughout the world. I'm teaching the course again right now. We just started this week. And again, I have almost exclusively female students, although a couple of guys are in the class this time around. And so I anticipate some of these same questions, but I'm interested in seeing their reaction to the book and interested in talking about this, in part because of the even more recent changes that have taken place now with uh, a relaxing of rules governing access and contact with family and friends and stuff like that on a more regular basis. How many are return missionaries this time? 
I think it's two again, but I but See, I have. I, I wonder. I, I wonder if maybe when you're in college still, you just aren't ready to reflect on it yet. That that you know, might kind very of, well you, be the you case. You kind of think you already know what it's about, and you know there were some things that you didn't like, but you, you're just going to go on. Yeah. And, and so the people who are curious are the ones who are going to go on missions. And I, I kind of wrote the book as a mission recovery book rather than a mission preparation book. <laughs> but but I did find my my nephew read it, and it really surprised me because he comes from a really you know, straight laced family, and he really liked it, and it helped. He felt like it helped him. He went to Albania, you know, yeah. all places. So, and so maybe for some people, maybe it would be helpful. No, absolutely. So, in that first time I taught it, uh, three of the students that were enrolled in that class are currently serving missions right now, mm -hmm. uh, and I've heard from each of them since they've been in the mission field in a brief email where they wrote and said. Your class was way better preparation than the class I took out of the religion department uh, to serve a mission because you introduced me to the complexities and the realities and yeah. uh, kind of the Christ versus culture conflict inherent in Christian mission. Um, and I think by implication, that of the saint mission. Uh, and I have one student taking the class right now. And on the first day of class, when we met earlier this week, and I said, tell me why you're taking this class. She said, missionary prep was full. So this seemed like the next best thing. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So that kind of speaks to what I was saying about learning things and getting things out of your mission that you didn't expect. And in spite of your training, that's exactly what I mean, mm -hmm. is that sometimes in the classes, you learn these ideals and maybe it's necessary to have those ideals. You know, it is, and every culture has its ideals. Right. And, and so you kind of have to fight this, you know, the hero's struggle is basically, in some degree, going against the ideals. But you have to have the ideals to start with. Yeah. And so at some point you have to say, okay, I'm going to learn this, but I might have to learn it on my own. What, how I'm going to do this rather than how they're telling me it's going to go. Right. So it's not like you do that with permission, but you kind of do it out of desperation, mm -hmm. out of need. At least some people do. Some people fit, you know, hand in glove with the mission sure. culture. You know, that's no problem. But there are others uh, who don't. And then those are the ones who kind of have to go through that. I think that's right. You said you wanted to split the divide between the relentlessly heroic sort of mission book on one hand or the astonishingly scandalous sort on the other. Had you read missionary literature before that you were thinking about while you were writing this? Oh, yeah, I read a bunch. Uh, I read partly when I was going on a mission. And then since I'd been home and I'd gotten interested in the whole idea of writing about them, and I thought, what have people written? Because I'd assumed there'd been a whole bunch written. And most of the things that had been written were prescriptive sorts of books rather than experience sorts of books. And the prescriptive sort of books were just like the sign of training you get, you know, in the MTC or whatever. And, you know, it, again, it's helpful to have some ideals and things to strive for, I think. But uh, I felt like some of them weren't entirely helpful and they don't necessarily prepare you the way you might. There were some experiential books out, not that many. They tended to be the scandalous ones, you know, people who would just, you know, here's the real story of the Mormon missions or whatever, which is partly true. I don't want to, I don't want to discount their experiences. You can't discount anyone's experience. But I felt like there were probably a lot more missionaries who were just trying to make sense of it, who'd done the best they could. And again, they didn't want to reflect on it. They go back to university and they don't want to think about it for a while. They, and, but it comes back to them anyway in their 30s or whatever, and they start having dreams. And, and that's how a lot of experiences are in our life that we haven't coped with or processed. You talked a lot about this kind of culture of success and sales techniques. It's very funny how you constantly refer to the missionaries as local businessmen, the way that you're trained to look and present yourself. 
what do you think the impact of that was on the missionary experience and on, on your psyche, this push for success as a kind of a sign of righteousness? Well, for some people, it probably worked great. I was friends on my mission with a guy who ended up being the national sales director for a big pharmaceutical company. And he was really fun to work with because he had no problem doing any of that stuff. It just came so naturally to him. And he's still a lot of fun. And I didn't think he would like my book, but he was one of the first ones who wrote me and said, oh, yeah, I could get so much. And it surprised me because we seemed like we had such different experiences. And then for people like that, they go off in the summers afterwards and they make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, <laughs> selling pest control or whatever. And they say, oh, yeah, the mission was a great preparation for that. Well, it is for some people, but I know other people who try that who are more of the introverted sort. And they thought, oh, yeah, because I was a return missionary, I know how to sell. And they go off to these or have these horror stories of going off to Florida, selling things for the summer and having no success at all. Right. So I think if you're one of those people, then the pressure on your psyche the feeling is that you have to be that way. And that's the problem. It's, it's like, it's always good to go out of yourself and try to learn new things. And so that part of it is good. Having to talk to people, maybe when you don't feel like it, not necessarily bad. In fact, at that age, it's especially good to get out of yourself a little bit. I think the problem is the one size fits all, that somehow the sales technique is the way to go. And, and I think that's been recognized and there are more there's a variety of approaches, but that partly depends on your mission president, too. Now, that's kind of tricky, but I think there's still that expectation that the proselyting mission is the supreme kind of mission. And really, it might be other kinds of missions that might actually even be more effective as far as gaining convert. I don't think that has to be the only goal, but ironically, that might be the goal. For instance, one of the things we were trained and stated explicitly in the White Handbook, you are not there to make friends. And we were told that so many times. It turns out from all the studies of conversion that actually people are most likely to convert because of social relationships, right? We always attribute it only to the spiritual manifestation. And it's not that those aren't there, but those are influenced heavily by personal relationships. So really the best thing we should be doing is making friends. And I started doing that, even though it was expressly said, don't do that. And because it felt right to me, it felt like the right thing to do, but I kind of, I just kept it quiet. I didn't make a big deal about it. That was just how I decided to go about things. And when I did, I was a lot happier, but it took me until I was, you know, out 18 months before I really started doing something like that. But again, it turns out that this is probably best for the church, not just best for the missionaries. It's probably best for the church in the long run. Chris mentioned about that students feeling like this was a good preparation for a mission. Is there any other pieces of literature out there that you think would be good for people to read either before they go on a mission or, or afterwards to look back on it? I think there's a lot that would be great for people to read before they go on a mission. Uh, in addition to Craig's memoir, I think the, the two recently published by, by Common Consent Press are Roger Terry's that you mentioned earlier and Andrew Clayton's. I think both of those uh, would be great to read. One thing that's really interesting to me about these now three books that have been recently published is their place. I like thinking about their place within a broader sweep of the Christian missionary memoir. And I'm curious if you read any of those, Craig, while you were writing your book. Yeah, well, I've read other memoirs in general. And Protestant missionaries, they have a different model. They, they often yeah. go as couples, right. or if they're single, they go for short six-week kinds of periods. And th that's probably more akin to the proselytizing mission of the Mormon missionaries. You read the Catholic missionaries, that's much more about, you know, you read Mother Teresa's work right. or something like that. It's just about taking care of the sick and you let the chips fall where they may. And right. 
so what I was going to say is if I were going on a mission, I think I'd read some of those books, like yeah. Mother Teresa or Gandhi mm. or some of these people who, who really believe or, or read Ammon in the Book of Mormon, right? They, they go on a mission with no ulterior motives. I'm just going to go be around people and be their friend. And I'm not going to have these, even in the ulterior motive of converting. You don't have to call that an ulterior motive, but I'm not just going to be your f- friend so that I can convert you down the road. I, I just want to express some kind of kinship with you. We're all children of God and so on. Uh, one one point I wanted to make though was that in rereading or relooking over some of these uh, these three recently published uh, memoirs of Mormon missions is how much they share in common with a series of essentially evangelical Protestant memoirs that have recently been published by uh, missionaries. The tone of those memoirs was described by one of these memoirists as uh, aiming to produce uh, skeptical hopefulness. Uh, meaning that they were skeptical of a lot of the traditional baggage surrounding Christian missions of various sorts, uh, humanitarian missions, proselytizing missions, and so on, but maintained that hopefulness of Christ's great commission that he delivers in the New Testament that inspired the Christian missionary movement. And I see a very similar tone in each of these books. They're irreverent, they're funny, they make you laugh, right? Um, If you're a returned Mormon missionary yourself, you resonate with parts of all three of these memoirs, I would guess. But at the same time, all three are, none of them are disenchanted. None of them are, uh, or at least thoroughly disenchanted with the missionary experience. They all look back uh, with some fondness for that missionary experience, for themselves, for the people they made, uh, met, for the relationships that they made, and recognize how influential and insightful that has been in their own life, right? But I think also reflect a little bit on uh, the good uh, that they were able to accomplish as missionaries. And that good is defined in a variety of ways. And sometimes it comes with a giant asterisk um, or questions or, or uh, uh, doubts about that. But it reminded me a lot of these other Christian missionary memoirs I've recently read. I, I, earlier this year, I read Jamie Wright's memoir, which is, which is called The Very Worst Missionary. Uh, and it's a blog <laughs> she started while she was a missionary that then <laughs> later took these blog posts and refined them a little bit and turned it into a memoir. And other than uh, slightly being more vulgar, it's really, really similar to Craig's and Angela's and Roger's memoirs in terms of the tone and in terms of kind of the ground that it stakes out for, did I do any good as a missionary? And what was the point of this? Uh, In her instance, it was a couple of year-long process. She and her husband and their uh, young children went as a family uh, with very little theological training or formal training of any sort uh, and volunteered as missionaries in Central America. And a lot of their experiences resonated with me, even though they're doing some different things than I did as a missionary and seem to resonate with these Mormon missionary memoirs as well. Okay, thank you. Well, I just want to say that I I think this is a wonderful book. Craig is a great storyteller. A lot of the story is bleak, very difficult, trying time, you know, where you're so excited about doing this great work and the people are just not interested. You know, very few people <laughs> want to want to speak to you about the religious things. And it's so frustrating. But I really love the way that you were able to express the actual feelings of the person at the time going through the mission. And you're just funny. <laughs> you're just, yeah, well, thanks. You're, you have a very funny way of, of approaching it, but also very touching. So Seeing humor in the bleakness, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite chapter to write was Five Cents Gray. And that is experience the gray of Belgium with all five senses. Because <laughs> I think that summed up so much of my experience 
as well. Yeah. When you, when you came in, you, you, you flew in and you talked about these orange houses and or the green, green roofs and the orange. It was so beautiful. I, I was so excited to go to Belgium. And then there's the great chapter of like, oh, I don't, I don't think I do want to go to Belgium. Right. But I, again, other people might have experienced it differently, right? I mean, it's kind of my personality filtering all this. And, and so I, I have to apologize to readers if they feel like it's a little too bleak at times. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. And we look forward to more of your writings in the future. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. We'll see you in a couple of months when we discuss the books reviewed in the spring 2020 issue of Dialogue. This will be a special issue edited by the editors of Exponent 2. See you then. We are Dialogue. 